This is Latin Pulse, a weekly analysis of news and public affairs in Latin America, brought to you through the cooperation of the School of Communications at Webster University, the global university headquartered in St. Louis, Missouri, and Link TV. And now, here's host Rick Rockwell. Bienvenidos and welcome to Latin Pulse. This week, when it comes to the United States, it's all about relationships, economic, diplomatic, and political. So what does this week's response from Washington to Puerto Rico's debt crisis say about the federal government's relationship with its island territory? And has the election year rhetoric in the U.S. permanently bruised relations with Mexico? But first, Chorzy Martin has our weekly review of news from around Latin America. Danilo Medina, the president of the Dominican Republic, easily won re-election this week. Medina took 62% of the vote and beat out six other candidates. He celebrated with supporters the night after votes were counted. So we have taken the path to work toward an understanding that the Dominican Liberation Party has won this election in order to make changes for the better and for the Dominican people. Six people died in violent clashes between competing parties during last weekend's vote. The Organization of American States, the OAS, criticized the election saying structural changes were needed for a better electoral process. Among the suggestions of the OAS election observers, a better system to guarantee access of all political parties to the media and a fair system for campaign finance. Speaking of the OAS, that organization's secretary general became embroiled in a Twitter feud this week with the president of Venezuela. President Nicolas Maduro sent out messages this week accusing Luis Almagro of being a CIA spy and a traitor. Almagro was the foreign minister of Uruguay's leftist government until he took his new position with the OAS. The secretary general responded in kind to Venezuela's president. He called Maduro a petty dictator and also a traitor. Maduro signed measures this week giving himself special emergency powers. And so far... Electoral authorities are blocking a recall effort, despite receiving 1.8 million signatures on a petition for Maduro's removal. Uruguay's former president, Jose Mojica, added to the name-calling this week that leftist former president called Maduro a crazy goat. Republicans in the U.S. Congress introduced a bipartisan bill aimed at saving Puerto Rico this week. Puerto Rico owes creditors $72 billion, the island which is a territory of the United States, has missed various payments to creditors and bondholders during the past year. The island's governor, Alejandro Garcia Padilla, predicts Puerto Rico would default on its July bond payments if no help arrives soon. The congressional proposal would allow the island to restructure its debt and install a financial control board that would supersede the island's elected government in deciding future expenditures and payments for state services. We'll have more on the debt crisis in Puerto Rico later on in this program. The growing Petrobras oil scandal in Brazil is getting closer to popular former President Lula. This week, a judge sentenced the country's former presidential chief of staff in connection with the scandal. Jose Dirso once was the right hand of President Luis Inacio Lula da Silva. But now Dirso faces the next 23 years in prison on charges of corruption money laundering, and conspiracy. Dirso is part of a large group of Brazilian politicians, contractors, and others who were connected to various schemes that drained more than $2 billion out of the state oil firm Petrobras. Earlier this year, prosecutors detained and questioned former President Lula in connection with the scandal. However, the former president has maintained his innocence and faces no current charges. 
Mexico's president wants his country to be among those in Latin America embracing same-sex marriage. President Enrique Peña Nieto made that proposal this week, saying Mexico should have a constitutional amendment that guarantees marriage equality. Same-sex marriage is already legal in Mexico City and two Mexican states, but most of the country doesn't honor those marriages. Mexico is regarded as one of Latin America's most conservative countries and has the second largest population of Catholics in the world. If Mexico's president gets his way, Mexico will join Argentina, Brazil, Colombia, and Uruguay as countries that recognize same-sex marriages. For Latin Pulse, I'm Chorsey Martin. Thanks, Chorsey. Our shout-out this week goes to our listeners in the United Kingdom. Our listening group in the UK was our third largest this past week, behind only our listeners in the United States and Mexico. So we say thank you very much to all of our listeners in the UK and elsewhere around the globe. And now we turn our attention back to Puerto Rico. As we heard earlier, the U.S. Congress is now working on a bill that may keep Puerto Rico from defaulting on its debts. We turn to Brad Setzer at the Council on Foreign Relations to help explain how the U.S. government intends to fight Puerto Rico's debt crisis. Setzer is the co-author of Bailouts and Bail-Ins, Responding to Financial Crises in Emerging Economies. He joined us from New York City via long-distance line. The first part of the bill creates an oversight board that would have uh, significant control over Puerto Rico's budget process uh, and would force Puerto Rico to develop budgets that uh, are realistic, that reflect the amount of revenues that Puerto Rico can uh, bring in and would uh, sort of guide Puerto Rico as it develops its restructuring proposal. And then the second component of the the bill creates uh, a process for and a legal framework for restructuring Puerto Rico's various debts. One of the key things about Puerto Rico is that it is issued debt in a lot of different ways. So it has a very complicated debt structure. There's not just one group of creditors. There are groups of creditors who own one kind of claims, another group of creditors who hold a slightly different kind of claim, and so on. And the, the legislation creates a legal framework that allows creditors... Uh, to work with Puerto Rico and the Oversight Board to reach agreement on a restructuring. So it's, it, broadly speaking, sets out a framework for fiscal oversight and a framework for the restructuring of Puerto Rico's debts, and both are essential components to creating a way out. Uh, but on its own, neither are also sufficient. Uh, fiscal oversight uh, doesn't assure a return to growth, and uh, the legal framework for debt restructuring is only the first step towards actually getting uh, an agreed uh, set of financial terms between Puerto Rico and its various groups of creditors. Beyond the research for your book, you obviously have experience with emerging economies and also Puerto Rico from your time with the U.S. Treasury. I'm wondering, with all of that acumen, what is your analysis of this solution? Do you think this is the right solution going forward? Uh, yes, I do. I mean, the, you know, Puerto Rico is a part of the United States. And because it is a part of the United States, uh, 
frameworks developed for managing emerging market crises uh, aren't directly applicable. Now, obviously, there are lessons to be learned, lessons that uh, that indicate that you know too much fiscal austerity doesn't uh, allow a return to growth. Lessons that uh, if you have too much debt, the right solution is to cut that debt. Uh, but at the same time, uh, the legal environment is different. There isn't an analog to the IMF in for a municipal fiscal crisis. And so the legislation recognizes those differences, and it, it creates uh, the Fiscal Oversight Board to sort of provide a framework for managing Puerto Rico's public finances, and then critically it creates a, a legal process that allows creditors in the first instance to vote, and if a vote, if it's not possible to reach agreement with all groups of creditors through a vote, for a judge to make the final determination on uh, what Puerto Rico can pay. Certainly there are those that talk about Puerto Rican rights who chafe at the idea of a fiscal oversight board. But I'm also reminded that when Washington, D.C., which is also not a state, had these types of financial problems, that there was also a fiscal oversight board that was appointed. And the person who led that board, Tony Williams, ended up being the mayor of Washington, D.C. He's come out recently and also supported the idea of a fiscal oversight board for Puerto Rico. Um, but this remains controversial. I, I wonder if you think that that is a bit of uh, overreach by governance or it's definitively something that is necessary in this particular case. Uh, unfortunately, I'm afraid it is necessary in this particular case. Uh, necessary because uh, Puerto Rico has a, a history of passing budgets that balance in theory, but don't balance in practice, and thus running ongoing uh, fiscal deficits, but also necessary because the, the, the new legislation would provide Puerto Rico with legal protection, uh, even in, while it is uh, in default on some of its bonds. And so you need a, a, a mechanism for uh, sort of watching how Puerto Rico manages its finances and the cash flows during it, what, will, what will likely be, be a protracted period when Puerto Rico is, uh, on one hand, receiving legal protection from its creditors, and on the other hand, seeking out agreement and trying to reach a consensus on a new uh, set of payment terms. So I think you know the the oversight uh, process is necessary. I think it is also necessary uh, that the the oversight board, uh, to the extent possible, uh, exercise its considerable power with considerable restraint and try to preserve as much room as is possible. Uh, subject to the requirement that budgets have to be honest, that revenues have to be accurately uh, forecast, that you can't spend something that you don't have. Subject to all those requirements, uh, provide a, you know, to respect Puerto Rico's existing democratic processes and institutions. The governor of Puerto Rico has already predicted that they will miss the bond payment in July. 
this bill is something put forward by Republicans. I think it has the backing of Speaker Ryan in the U.S. House of Representatives. And I believe it's also something that was worked out with some compromises with the White House. Um, But is it possible for there to be this type of uh, support for Puerto Rico in enough time not to to cause further problems for missing bond payments in July? Uh, It is possible, but the timeline is really tight. Uh, The legislation, the draft legislation uh, still needs to be passed by the relevant committee in the House, passed by the full House, and then uh, go over to the Senate. Uh, It could be passed before July 1st, but that will only be possible if both the House and the Senate move expeditiously. And July 1st is a real deadline. Not only will does Puerto Rico lack the the funds to make uh, the wall of payments on July 1st, but uh, Puerto Rico, on you know, if it doesn't have legal protection, Puerto Rico would be faced with uh, a lot of litigation, a whole series of different bondholder uh, efforts to uh, collect on their bonds after the the inevitable default on July 1st, and those legal, that litigation could trigger another downward leg in Puerto Rico's crisis could make it very difficult for the government to provide necessary public services. So I, it really is essential now that, uh, that Speaker Ryan and uh, the U.S. Treasury and the White House have worked hard to produce a bipartisan consensus uh, legislation that that move ahead quickly because it really does provide necessary tools to allow an orderly resolution We have been tracking this crisis on this program for a year. It has actually been on the radar of some for longer than a year. So some might ask, why now? Why, when we're getting so close to this July payment, um, is is Congress only now um, working on this particular crisis, this particular financial crisis? And hasn't it already had an impact on infrastructure on the island? Hasn't it already had an impact on education systems, on medical systems, and other services that the state would provide? Uh, There's no question that Puerto Rico has been in an ongoing fiscal crisis for for quite some time, and that that fiscal crisis has gotten significantly worse over the past uh, uh, two years, uh, as Puerto Rico has uh, been shut out, not just from traditional municipal bond finances, but even from uh, much more expensive, non-traditional sources of finances. And so Puerto Rico has been uh, operating on fumes for the past nine months. And that has had, probably longer than nine months, past 12 months, and that has had a, a serious impact on Puerto Rico's uh, uh, economy and on the, the ability of, the Puerto, of Puerto Rico's government to pay its bills on time. And it is affecting the, the quality uh, of public services. So absolutely true. Uh, it, though, took some time for uh, the House to, to educate itself on the nature of Puerto Rico's fiscal problems, on the nature of Puerto Rico's economic problems, and to, to get consensus. When I 
discuss this with other people. Inevitably, the question becomes, how did Puerto Rico get into this state where it owes $72 billion? And, and some people are struck by, by the enormity of that particular total. Uh, what is your analysis of how they got themselves into this particular problem? One, Puerto Rico, starting in roughly 2005, maybe 2006, went into uh, a deep recession, uh, and it never really recovered from that recession uh, after 2009. Puerto Rico experienced its own uh, real estate crisis, uh, housing boom prior to 2005, and then uh, a housing bust that had a big impact on uh, the, the Puerto Rico's banking system and hindered economic recovery. And then in the face of this sustained economic decline, uh, Puerto Rico's government uh, consistently uh, spent more than it took in, uh, in part because it was hard to maintain revenues as, as the economy slid down. Uh, and because it was uh, borrowing to cover expenses, but also to cover interest on old debt, uh, Puerto Rico managed to build up a rather significant amount of debt over the, the past uh, 10 years. And the, that combination of ongoing borrowing and a sliding economy uh, left Puerto Rico in a, a deep hole. Thank you so much, Brad Setzer of the Council on Foreign Relations, the co-author of Bailouts and Bail-Ins, Responding to Financial Crises in Emerging Economies. Join us on Latin Pulse via Long Distance Line from New York City today. Thank you for being on our program. Uh, my pleasure. Thank you so much. Coming up, corruption, diplomacy, and politics, a wide-ranging discussion on Mexico. Stay with us. Democracy is synonymous with independence. Independence is synonymous with emancipation. Emancipation is synonymous with sovereignty. Sovereignty is synonymous with superiority. Superiority is synonymous with arrogance. Arrogance is synonymous with domination. And domination is synonymous with dictatorship. Dictatorship always finds its way. Amnesty International. Learn. Indignate. Act. Welcome back to Latin Pulse. This week, our program features two experts from the Council on Foreign Relations. Some may recall we spoke to Shannon O'Neill from the Council last month, and we promised a second part to that interview on corruption. And in this second segment, we complete our discussion on that topic and also discuss diplomacy and how the U.S. presidential race is changing the nature of Mexico's relationship with the U.S. O'Neill is the author of Two Nations Indivisible, Mexico, the United States, and the Road Ahead. She joined us via Skype from New York City. One of the more hopeful things I think that's happened in Mexico is around pushing forward this anti-corruption agenda. We've seen a huge group of civil society activists, of intellectuals, of NGOs, of think tanks, of business leaders come together, pushing for this change and actually putting a bill in front of the Congress, which they're allowed to with the political reforms now. So collecting over 600,000 signatures to put this bill called the Ley Tres de Tres, or three for three. And what this bill would do if it's passed is it would actually define corruption. 
which is not particularly clear. So conflicts of interest would be defined as corruption. Using your public office for personal gain, that would be defined as corruption. And so defining that and then giving prosecutors tools to go after those. So it would make it easier down the road for able and willing prosecutors to actually take on these crimes, which is not easy to do in a technical legal way today in Mexico. Would the Casablanca scandal, this scandal where a contractor did special favors, you might say, for uh, the president's wife and others, would that be ruled as corruption underneath these new reforms? It would be seen most likely as a conflict of interest. And today in Mexico, that conflict of interest idea that we have in the United States or in other legal systems is murky at best. So this would clearly define it is a conflict of interest to give favorable loan terms or, or what have you, and then also receive government contracts. So that would be much clearer and would presumably preclude that from happening. Or if it did happen in the future, allow investigators, prosecutors to, to actually move ahead and indict and investigate. Your book is about the two nations indivisible, Mexico and the United States, together. Uh, and you mentioned earlier that Mexico has been front and center in, in the political campaigns in the United States for president. Um, certainly since last summer, the rhetoric surrounding the Trump campaign um, really got much of its energy and amplification um, regarding these issues of immigration. Uh, now, of course, there's great talk about uh, the building of a, a grand wall. Um, what are your thoughts about where these two nations go together as this rhetoric heats up as in the presidential race? You know, presidential races are often about sound bites. They're about positions that rally people and get them to the polls. They're not necessarily about governing. Um, and there's a switch when you get someone comes into administration. And it's a switch uh, in terms of what a president needs to do. And it's also they recognize and they need to appeal to Congress. So that the checks and balances come into play. And that's where you get incrementalism, which you know, frustrates people, but but is also often good because you get small changes, not not wholesale changes. Uh, so I think some of the rhetoric will remain on the campaign trail, and, and whoever comes into the White House next year will have a more moderated approach to Mexico or to other places. But there is a worry here, and in many of the things that are being questioned, whether it's the trade that goes across the border and, and the people, the workers and the companies that supports on both sides, whether it's the individuals and, and the, the, the way Mexicans and Mexican-Americans are portrayed, you know, in, in often very negative terms. I mean, these are people who are part of our community. Some of them have been in the United States uh, longer than the states they're in have been part of the United States, right? They were territories when they first moved there, and, and the border moved on them, not them coming across the border. So I think there is a real challenge here is how do you fix some of or heal some of those suspicions when you move into governing again. And, you know, we need to in this remember that Mexico is one of our largest trading partners and um, that back and forth that goes across the border every day, $1.5 billion worth of goods. It goes both ways. We sell $250 billion to Mexican consumers or Mexican companies from the U.S. every year. And that's far more than we sell to many of our other trading partners, almost every trading partner besides Canada. So this is really an important relationship for the United States and for U.S. workers and communities. It's not just Mexico benefiting from the U.S., it's the U.S. benefiting from the ties to Mexico. 
If there is another Clinton administration, uh, certainly there will be a, a very different approach to Mexico than if there is a Trump administration. But some have cautioned that actually the rhetoric of the campaign that Donald Trump has used is 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 just that. It's rhetoric and that um, he might smartly be very pragmatic about negotiating after that. How, how do you see the differences between those two front-running candidates? Well, obviously, their rhetoric has, has been very different. Um, and I think the challenge is, even if, if say, uh, President Trump would take a pragmatic turn towards Mexico and some of the rhetoric about the the nature of Mexico's people, the rhetoric about immigration, about the wall, about trade and the like, even if that was toned down, it has, when you're in Mexico, where I was last week, it has changed the dynamic there. And it has brought up many of the nationalist sentiment that is always underlying Mexico, just as it often is in, in the United States as well, and is shaping their politics. So you think about the United States and Mexico and all of the very complex issues that we need to work on together. There's security issues, there's immigration issues, there's community issues, there's trade issues, there's border issues, there's climate change issues, and you can keep going on on the many things, water issues that we work together. You need partners who feel comfortable with each other at the table. And one thing I do think the rhetoric from Trump and some others has made it much more difficult to reconcile, to be that pragmatist that wants to make a deal afterward. That might be his, what he chooses to do, it might not. I mean, that is something to be seen. But I do think it, it makes it, poisons the well a bit in terms of the ability to sit across the table from each other and negotiate with good faith. Because Mexico, too, has its own internal politics. And some of the language coming out of, of the Trump and other campaigns have made it very difficult for Mexico's political leaders to, to sit back uh, when they hear this. We've covered quite a lot of ground here, from human rights to corruption to the connection between Mexican politics and U.S. politics on a presidential level. I, I wonder um, what we've skipped and, and what you feel like uh, is important for us to know. You know, I think Mexico, this is an interesting time for Mexico. You look at Latin America broadly, and it's going through a very tough period. The commodity bust, the pullback from emerging markets more generally, a lot of the other economic challenges, global challenges that are happening, the changes in China that are happening, the uncertainty there. But many of the South American nations are suffering much more than Mexico. Mexico has been able to grow at about 2.5% this last year. It looks like into the future. It's no longer a commodity-dependent economy. Oil is only 5-6% of GDP, much less than it was in the past. This is really an economy guided by manufacturing, by openness to the world, and by its ties to the United States. So it's a very different situation than a Brazil or an Argentina or Peru or Chile or, or many of others of those countries. So that's good for Mexico in many ways because it has transformed its economy. It's a much more modern economy. Uh, it's not linked to China. It's linked to the United States. But it also sets up its own set of challenges. What happens in the United States is much more important for Mexico than it is for any other nation uh, throughout Latin America. And so the, it rises and falls with North America, not with South America, not, frankly, at this point, with Asia and the like. So it's, it's a different story than other places. There's lots of benefits to it. Uh, and I do think some of the changes, the economic reforms of the first part of this administration will lead to a better Mexico 10 years down the road, a generation down the road in terms of education, in terms of inclusiveness, in terms of openness and productivity. But it has this one fundamental, in my view, challenge, and that is the challenge of rule of law. 
and that is the issue of security and violence, the types of things that led to the death of the students in, in Guerrero. Um, but that also has to do with the corruption. If Mexico can take on those issues, and I think it will if it's pushed by its society, that's where that will come from, then I think it can be a much better place. But if it doesn't take on those issues, then all these economic reforms, all these other efforts will, will diminish. The benefits will diminish for the larger population. Thank you so much. Shannon O'Neill joining us today on Latin Pulse via Skype from New York City. She's with the Council on Foreign Relations and the author of Two Nations Indivisible, Mexico, the United States, and the Road Ahead. Thank you so much for being our guest. Nice to be here. Thanks for joining us this week for Latin Pulse. If you'd like to send us your suggestions or comments, you may leave us a message online via SoundCloud, or you may write us via email. You can find us at latinpulse at gmx.com. That's Latin Pulse, all one word, at gmx.com. You can also find our program at the website Latin America Goes Global. You can find that website at Latin America Goes Global, written as all one word, dot O-R-G. If you're looking for earlier editions of our program, we're available in other locations on the web, including iTunes, Facebook, and Henty Flow. And as always, you can find us in the Brazilian online game, Minimundos. To see the Latin Pulse archives of video programs on Latin America, you can check out Link TV's website. You can find it at linktv, all one word, dot org, and then slash Latin dash pulse. That's linktv.org slash Latin dash pulse. Thanks for joining us this week on Latin Pulse for our entire team, production assistant Chorsey Martin and technical director Jim Singer. I'm Rick Rockwell. Escuchen nosotros vez. Gracias por su tiempo. Latin Pulse is produced at the School of Communications at Webster University, the global university, headquartered in St. Louis, Missouri, with music copyright support through Webster University and Link TV. This program is copyright 2016 Las Rocas Productions. Music